0: Chapter Fourteen, Part Four of History of the Christian Church during the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church during the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter Fourteen Growth of the Church, Part Four The Britons, under the Roman dominion, seem to have gained a high degree of civilization. The foundations and the mosaic pavements of handsome villas are found in the south of England as frequently as in the Rhineland, and the higher school training passed on from the Gauls to their kindred beyond the strait. In the time of Hadrian, said the satirist, British pleaders learned the art of speaking from glib-tongued Gaul, and even Thule, meaning probably the Shetlands, was thinking of engaging a tutor. Plutarch tells us of a conversation which he had with a Greek teacher whom he met at Delphi, who was on his way home from Britain to Tarsus. It is probable from such instances that the educated classes may have to some extent have adopted the Roman tongue as we know was the case in Gaul. There is abundant testimony to the existence of a regular settled church in Britain in Roman times in communion with the church throughout the world, our remote island, had learned the power of the Word and had its churches and altars. There, too, was a theology founded on Scripture. There were heard the denunciations and the promises of the Gospel. It is even probable that the British had their own Latin translation of the Scriptures. Britain worshipped the same Christ and observed the same rule of truth as Africa, Persia, and India. British pilgrims visited the holy places in the East from the end of the fourth century onwards, Constantine included the British bishops in his invitation to the Council of Nicaea, and Athanasius testifies that British bishops assented to its conclusions. At the Council of Sardica, Britons were numbered among those who acquitted Athanasius. Hilary of Poitiers, the Anathasius of the West, bore witness in the year 358 to the orthodoxy of Britain but in the following year the British prelates who were present at Rimini were coaxed and bullied, like the great majority of their brethren, into giving their assent to the inorthodox formula of the council which met there. We learn, incidentally, that three of the British bishops, on account of their poverty, accepted the imperial allowance, which the rest of the Britons and the Gauls of Aquitaine declined. But with all these signs of life, the history of the British church in Roman times is almost a blank no scrap of writing of any inhabitant of britain in that age has come down to us the rhetorical exaggeration of gildas in the sixth century and the legends written down by nennius if this be indeed the name of a real person at some later date the scanty entries in the saxon chronicle a few particulars which Bede in the eighth century gave of a church which had already vanished from the greater part of the island These are all the literary materials which we have for a history of the ancient British Church. And archaeological research helps us little. We have a few remains of perhaps some six or eight Romano-British churches, and some forty or fifty sepulchral slabs and objects of various kinds of the Roman period are thought to bear indications of Christianity. Perhaps no church in the world has left in the region which it once occupied so few traces of its existence, Probably, as seems to be indicated by the poverty of its bishops at Rimini, the British church was poor, its churches for the most part slight buildings of wood, and its art rudimentary. Its vessels of precious metal and its books no doubt vanished in the Saxon storm. It may be that its history was uneventful. It seems to have been little hurt by persecution. If St. Alban and his companions suffered for the faith in the bad days of Diocletian, this must not be supposed to indicate any general massacre, for we have the express testimony of Lactantius and Eusebius, contemporary witnesses, that the division of the empire over which Constantius bore sway, enjoyed calm while the rest of the world was beaten with the tempest. The principal event in the internal history of this church, which remains on record, is connected with the Pelagian heresy. Pelagius, though a Briton, does not appear to have propagated his peculiar opinions in his native island. They were introduced by Agricola, the son of a Pelagian bishop, from Gaul. In this trouble, a deacon named Palladius, probably a Briton, induced Pope Clustinus to send to Britain Germanus, bishop of Auxerre, who was accompanied by Lupus, bishop of Troyes. These excellent men, preaching not only in the churches, but in the streets and lanes and fields, strengthened the Catholics in the faith, and convinced gainsayers. During his visit, Germanus is said to have led a body of newly baptized Britons against the pagan Picts and Saxons, and, with a loud shout of Alleluia at the moment of onset, to have gained a great victory over them at a place near Mould in Flintshire, which still retains the name of Maes Garmon, German's Field. The same heresy, however, broke out again, and about the year 447 the good Germanus, then an old man, was again summoned to give peace to the island. This time he was accompanied by Severus, Bishop of Trèves and the efforts of the two were so successful that the heretical leaders were expelled, and from that time the Catholic faith in the island remained inviolate. From the middle of the fifth century a dark cloud covered Britain for about a hundred years, From the time when the Romans gave up the island, perhaps earlier, Saxons had settled here and there on the coast, but in 449 they landed in force in Kent, and began to push their conquests inland. The contest between the natives and the invaders was very different from that on the continent. There one or two battles generally sufficed to make the Teutons masters of a country. They settled down as rulers without uprooting all its social institutions. Here. The fight lasted for several generations. So late as the year 584, we find the Britons still valiantly resisting in the West. The result of this long period of war and unrest was that the Britons were exterminated or reduced to slavery in the south and center of the country, and the remains of Romano-British civilization annihilated by the pagan invaders. The Church, however, survived, though with a much diminished territory, in the Cambrian mountains, where the Britons still worship God in their churches in the ancient tongue of their forefathers, in Cumbria, in Cornwall, and perhaps in Armorica, the little Britain beyond the sea, which we now call Brittany. As was natural, when the British Christians were almost cut off from the continent by the mass of pagan intruders, they retained several customs which had either been abandoned by the church in general, or had been always peculiar to themselves. They differed as to the time of their Easter, their form of baptism, and of ordaining bishops, and their tonsure. Before it was swept away from the most important portion of its old domain, the British church had already begun the great work of Christianizing its pagan neighbors. St. Ninean or Neneas, a bishop of British race who had been trained at Rome, early in the 5th century preached the gospel to the southern Picts, Celts who had never been brought under the dominion of the Romans, and who were consequently in a much ruder state than their kinsmen within the empire. Among these he built a church of stone, a strange sight to the Britons, at Whithorn, in Galloway, where he placed his episcopal seat, and which he dedicated in the name of St. Martin of Tours, whom he had probably visited in his journeys across Gaul to and from Italy. There he died and was buried probably his work had little permanent effect, for the district appears to have been pagan when Columba reached its shores towards the end of the 6th century. During the time when the British church was enjoying quietness under the Roman peace, which restrained the warring tribes, the great island to the west of it was still lying in darkness. It was called by Greek writers Iern, by the Latins Hibernia and Juverna, but from the fifth century for many generations it bore the name of scotia scotland and its inhabitants were scots from that tribe of milesian settlers who came most in contact with their neighbors on the eastern side of the hibernian sea the early irish poems and romances give the impression that even before the advent of christianity there was in the island an ancient civilization of a type different from that of the romans or the teutons and even from that of the Celts of Britain, or the continent. Early in the 5th century, however, a missionary went, probably from our shores, to the western island. All that is really known of him is, that it is recorded under the year 431, that Palladius, the same who induced Pope Celestinus to send Germanus to the Britons, was himself ordained by that pope, and sent as their first bishop to the Scots, who believed in Christ. Nennius tells us that he passed from Hibernia to Britain, where he died in the land of the Picts. Of his work we have no history, but a cloud of legend has gathered round him, as was natural where little was known. But all previous mission work in Ireland was thrown into the shade by that of St. Patrick, who is universally reverenced as the Apostle of Ireland. This great saint was, like St. Paul, free-born. His father was Calpurnius, a deacon who was also a decurio, one of the council, that is, of a municipium, who was son of Potibius, the son of Odysseus, a presbyter. He was born, he tells us, at Banavem tiburniae a place of which nothing is known, except that, since it had decurions, it must have been within the empire. It was probably on the west coast of Britain, south of the wall of Antoninus. Wherever it was, when he was sixteen years of age, he was carried off by marauders, with his father's men servants and maidservants, and thousands of others, to Ireland. There, a beardless boy, rough, untaught, he herded the cattle of his master, and prayed. In answer to his prayers, he heard a voice in the night, telling him that he would return to his native land. He found a ship, and was carried over the sea to the home of his parents, who rejoiced that among the pagans he had not fallen from the faith but he could not rest. He heard his old companions in the western Isle calling on him to return, and an inward voice warned him that he was to become a bishop. He proposed to go to preach the gospel to those whom he had left behind. Friends naturally dissuaded him from rushing again into peril among a people that knew not God, but he withstood their prayers. He had vowed to God to teach the pagans even to the loss of life itself if it so pleased him. He returned, and God gave him grace, he says in his simple way, to convert many people and ordain many clergy. In particular, he tells us more than once of the number of his converts who devoted themselves to the ascetic life. Young Scots became monks, and chieftains' daughters innumerable became handmaids of Christ. St. Patrick's work succeeded, but not without suffering. He carried his life in his hand, and always looked for death, captivity, or slavery chieftains seized him and his companions with a view to kill them. On at least one occasion a body of the newly baptized, still in their white raiment, were butchered or led captive. Christians were sold to heathen picts. Baptized women and the lands of orphans were distributed to the boon companions of chiefs. How long his work in Ireland lasted is uncertain, as the dates given by the older authorities for his death vary from 457 to 493 nor is it known where or by whom he was ordained. He himself, in his confession, tells us nothing on this point, though he seems to imply that there was some opposition to his consecration as bishop. The ancient hymn of St. Sechnal gives the impression that he received his apostleship, like St. Paul, direct from heaven. Some ancient authorities describe him as spending some time with Germanus of Auxerre, and as being ordained by him, but nothing of this appears to be known to Constantius, Germanus's almost contemporary biographer. According to some accounts, Germanus sent him to Rome, to be ordained by Colistinus himself, while again Colostinus is described as causing him to be ordained by the priest-king Amatho, but Prosper, the pope's secretary, knows nothing of any connection of Colostinus with Patrick, though he records the mission of Palladius and the author of the life of Colestinus in the Liber Pontificalis is equally silent. It has been pointed out that St. Patrick laid special stress on the inclination of the Scots of Ireland to the ascetic life, a circumstance which gave so great prominence to the monasteries which sprang up in all parts of the country that the ecclesiastical system established there may be described as monastic rather than diocesan. A monastery rather than an episcopal see was regarded as the center of the ecclesiastical life and organization for a district. Sometimes the abbot was himself a bishop, sometimes he had among his monks a bishop, who was under his jurisdiction, and performed episcopal offices for the monastery and its dependent district, a state of things probably scarcely to be found elsewhere, though bishop monks existed in the churches of St. Denis and St. Martin of Tours in France the greatest promoter of monasticism in ireland was brigida now known as saint bridget or saint bride who is said to have been born of noble blood at fauger near Dundalk, about the year 453. there is a legend that in her infancy the house in which she was blazed with light and yet nothing was burned a story which has led some to suppose that traits which originally belonged to the myth of a fire goddess have been transferred to the saint and it is stated that the Celtic goddess who was the patron of smiths was named Bridget, the fiery arrow. Geraldus Cabrensis tells us that at Kildare, St. Bridget had a perpetual fire watched by twenty nuns. All that we know of her early life indicates vigor of character and sweetness of disposition, and an old hymn speaks of her as a marvelous ladder for pagans to visit the kingdom of Mary's son. She refused marriage, and at last her father permitted her to dedicate herself to the Lord. The great event of her life was the foundation of the Monastery of Kildare for men and women, which soon had many affiliated establishments in all parts of the country. Bridget, like other heads of convents, had her own bishop, and with him she governed the other houses of her rule together with their bishops. She is believed to have died at Kildare on the 1st February 523, on which day she is commemorated in the calendar, having earned by her works and her character the title of The Mary of Ireland. Churches dedicated to Saint Bride in all parts of the British Islands testify to the widespread reverence of her name. Christianity found a congenial soil in Ireland. Her warm-hearted and emotional people received with eagerness the story of the self-sacrifice of Christ and of the saints who followed him, After the time of St. Patrick there was little or no persecution. They had a natural bent towards poetry and art, and this was readily turned to Christian subjects. Their songs soon came to celebrate Christian saints instead of pagan heroes. Nowhere perhaps was the whole literature of a country more distinctly influenced by the teaching of the church while retaining its own national character, and the remote situation of Ireland favored her spiritual and intellectual development while britain and the continent were overwhelmed by the teutonic invasion she enjoyed calm and became a light to lighten the mainland of europe as well as her nearer neighbors the earliest of the great scoto irish missionaries was saint columba he was born in ireland probably in the year 521 of a noble family connected with the dalriads of caledonia and is thought to have begun the foundation of monasteries of which the chief were duro and derry about the year 544, when he had received priests' orders. Various reasons, among which it is difficult to distinguish the true one, are given for his leaving Ireland. Whatever the cause, in the year 563, the 42nd of his age, he crossed the strait in a frail bark of wicker covered with hides, and landed with twelve companions on the small isle of I, High, or Iona, afterwards known as Ilcomkill, the isle of Columba's cell, separated by a narrow strait from the larger island of Mull. There he founded a monastery, and made it the centre whence he and his followers preached the gospel to the Picts, and revived religion among the Scots, who were already to some extent Christian. High was thenceforth his chief abode, but he was too fully possessed by the eager spirit which urged so many of his countrymen to distant travel, to remain quietly in one house. He and his monks undertook many journeys, penetrating, it is thought, as far north as Inverness and as far east as Aberdeen. So far as we know, it was he who first taught Christianity north of the Clyde and the Tay. He also frequently visited Ireland to take the oversight of the monasteries of his foundation. The chronology of this period is somewhat obscure, but it is probable that he died, after a life of constant activity, on June 9, A.D. 597. If this is correct, the Celtic apostle of Caledonia died in the very year in which Augustine set foot on the shore of Kent. A goodly company of disciples carried on Columba's work. The monastery of Iona, like other Celtic foundations of that age, had its bishop, subject to the abbot, and for two centuries it was the nursery of bishops, the center of education, the asylum of religion, the ecclesiastical metropolis of the celtic race during those two centuries its abbot retained an undisputed supremacy over all the monasteries and churches of caledonia and over those of half-ireland a rule bearing the name of columba is extant in the old irish tongue but this is almost certainly a later production of some columbite monk or hermit it is clear that the scoto-irish church was developed in perfect independence of rome for it held for many generations customs, such as the predominance of abbots over bishops, a peculiar easter and a peculiar tonsure, which Rome, when it had the power, put down. In the end, the Celtic churches were absorbed by the Roman. It is curious to reflect that if they had been able to maintain their position, the numerous missionaries who went forth from this island might have propagated on the continent a non-papal Christianity, and Boniface might never have brought Germany under the dominion of the supreme pontiff. In that case, as the dissensions between the empire and the church were for centuries the leading events in Europe, the whole course of medieval history would have been changed. It is conceivable that the reformation of the sixteenth century, largely occasioned as it was by the hatred felt by the Teutons for Italian ecclesiastics, might never have been required, or might have taken an entirely different course. But it is idle to attempt to write the history of that which might have been. End of chapter fourteen, part four.